Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, who, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, last week I started a message with the story of Corey Ten Boom. Imagine for a moment that you are a, a German Christian in World War II and your Jewish neighbor comes to you and asks for you to hide them because out of fear for your life and you do so. And then one evening the SS comes to your door and they bluntly ask you if you have any information. Do you know at all what has happened to those Jewish neighbors? Did you see where they go? What do you say? Or let's say that you're a soldier and it's March the 16th, 1968, and you're entering a village called Milai. And you've been given the orders from your officers that this is a VC village. Everyone in the village is to be killed. But when you get there, you don't find any men with guns. You just find old men and old women and mothers and children. And they're on their knees. They're unarmed. They're begging you for their lives. And you're ordered to take them to a ditch at the end of the village and kill all of them. What do you do as a Christian soldier? Or you are living, an American Christian living next door to an abortion clinic in Gulfport, Mississippi in the 1990s. And state leaders of Operation Rescue come to you one evening and they tell you that you're in a unique position to put the very last clinic in Mississippi out of business. All you need to do is in the middle of the night, hop over the fence with a can of gasoline and a cloth wicker and light it and throw it against the building. And before the fire could ever get there, the building will be burned down. And considering what takes place, they ask you and tell you in that clinic, they look you in the eye and they say, and they ask you a question, wouldn't God want you to do this so that you could save the innocent lives of unborn children? You don't believe in abortion, so what do you do? I mean, these are all situations and scenarios that put us in a position, conundrums, right, where we have to take this passage, Romans 13, 
and prayerfully apply it to every one of these types of scenarios. Last week gave you an overarching truth of this passage that transformed Christians honor and support their governing leaders. This is clear in the first five verses. And the reason why we are to do this is put out that God, he's the one who ordains. He's the one who puts leaders in place and to rebel against God's ordained leaders and to disobey them when they are not telling you to do something that is unscriptural is to actually rebel against God. Instead, Verses 6 and 7 teach us that we're to support and honor our leaders. This comes about through financial support, right? Through paying our taxes and tributes, and also through spiritual, emotional support by praying for them, respecting them, honoring them, and giving them that moral support. And then we closed out last week with that uh, wonderful principle that this passage is actually kind of amplifying on. What Jesus told us in Matthew 22 to render unto Caesar what is the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So that was the teaching last week. Now, this week, we're going to go into part two. I want you to remember that, over, that, that overarching truth because now we need to ask the question, so what? Right? We're in a series of messages. So what? This practical application of what we've learned in the book of, of, of Romans. What does it look like for Christians who are transformed live in the type of environment that we live in right now, where our nation is as polarized as it's been since the Vietnam War. Divisions and schisms are in place and emotions are running high. What does it look like practically for us to live in this type of society when there's things going on that we may not even approve of or endorse, either in the government levels or in society as a whole? So how do we live this out? What does it look like? Um, I want to give you this morning four imperatives and a final observation from this passage. But I want you to remember that when we come to imperatives, an imperative that is not grounded in the truth of this passage, that we are transformed Christians, right? We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Before we can ever submit to a government, we first must submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. But when we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and he becomes our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives. He begins to change us from the inside out. Instead of being conformed to the world, he begins to transform us, right? So that we live differently. And we, we interact with society differently and our government differently because we belong to Jesus and we're submitting to his lordship of our lives. Imperatives that are not grounded in the reality of that truth are nothing more than self-righteousness and works righteousness. So everything that I'm giving you this morning by way of application through imperatives is grounded in that simple indicative truth of who we are in Jesus Christ and our submission to him has ramifications in our submission to the government. Nod your head if you understand what I'm saying here, okay? All right, so let me give you the first imperative. If we wanna know what it looks like to, you know, to respect, honor, be a transformed Christian living in our society today. How do we do this? How do we actually put this into practice? I would suggest it first starts by asking the Holy Spirit on a regular basis to reveal the state of your heart. You know, I, I had a unique uh, opportunity as a child to sit in the auditorium when moral majority began. And they had all of the programming and everything that took place 
And actually I was, I guess, in middle school at the time. And, and I saw in that room what happens when you Christianize and spiritualize the American flag. Um, and here's the issue. Oftentimes as Christians, we are so blind to how we do this, that we Christianize and spiritualize the American flag and we politicize the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Uh, and and it, it seems to, to actually occur more often at the more conservative churches and the more liberal churches. Both, both extremes tend, I think, to do this, to spiritualize the American flag and politicize the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? I think, in essence, it's because it's hard for us to grasp the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is primarily spiritual. We can't put our fingers on it necessarily and touch it and feel it and taste it and smell it. It's harder to grasp. It's harder to perceive. Whereas the kingdom of America, right? This is our political nation. This is very easy for us to perceive and comprehend because it is a physical thing. It interacts with us throughout our day. We watch it on the news every evening. And so it's very easy for us to begin to treat the kingdom of America like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God like the kingdom of America. You see what I'm saying here? And because of this, we have to continually do heart checks, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we are at that moment in time. We, we have to appeal to the Holy Spirit to give us answers to some very hard questions. When we ask ourselves questions like, where do I spend more of my energy, the kingdom of America or the kingdom of God? Where do I exhibit the most passion, the kingdom of America or the kingdom of God? Right? Where or what provokes the, the strongest emotional responses in my life, whether it's joy or anger, disgust or celebration? Is it the kingdom of America or is it the kingdom of God? Which one is it? Hey, I want you to do something. I want you to take out your cameras, your phone, your camera, right? Or write really fast. I have a question. I just want to put it before you this morning. And I'm going to ask you to meditate on this, to chew on this, to pray over it, to, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity on just a simple question that is very convicting to me. And I hope it does the same to you this morning. Here it is. With whom? Do I feel the most affection and affinity? People who agree with my politics, but don't share my faith? Or people who share my faith, but don't agree with my politics? With whom do I feel the most affection, the most affinity? With whom do I want to hang around with the most, have conversations with the most, enjoy their company the most? People who agree with my politics, but don't share my faith, or people who share my faith, but don't agree with my politics. How we answer that question will definitely give us insight as to whether or not we are politicizing the cross and spiritualizing the flag in our nation. Second imperative, a second application. We honor, respect, and obey government leaders, including the ones we disagree with or dislike. You know, one of the reasons we have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our hearts is because there is a 
intrinsic fleshly desire in our hearts to explain away the clear meaning of this passage. We talked on this, touched on this last week. This passage is very clear. Paul is, Paul is talking to Roman Christians, right? Romans who are under the rule of Caesar Nero. And here's what Paul was saying to this Roman church. He's saying, church, God put Caesar Nero on the throne. Now honor him. Now obey him. Render to him what is due to him, but don't render to him what is due to God. Can you imagine how hard it was for them to hear that? If he was writing it today, he would say, covenant church. God put President Trump in the Oval Office. Or God put President Obama in the Oval Office. God put President Bush in the Oval Office. God put Bill Clinton in the Oval Office. Now, honor him, respect him, obey him. This is hard, isn't it? Especially if you don't necessarily like how they live their life. If you don't like words that come out of their mouth, if you don't like what comes out on the social media and the screen, or if you don't endorse policies that they're supporting that's run antithetical to how you understand the scriptures to be called the teaching. But we're called on by God to humbly pray for these leaders, to respect them, not smear them and slander them, regardless of their political party. We're never given the right to smear and slander our governmental leaders. It's just not there. You know, in fact, to the Ephesian Christians, Paul will say to them, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Peter will write to the church, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the, the emperor as supreme or to the governors in your area, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Rendering to Caesar what belongs to Caesar as a Christian means honoring them, respecting them, obeying them, and praying for them. Praying for them to come to know Jesus Christ. Praying for them to, to be blessed in their leadership. Praying for them to make the right decisions. Because the heart of the king, the Proverbs tells us, is in the hands of God. He will direct it just as he does the streams and the rivers. We're never given the right to smear and slander on social media, our, uh, our political leaders or our political opponents. So it's not it. Hey, let's, let's park there for a second. Let's go from preaching to meddling, and let's talk about social media for a second, okay? You know, social media is an absolutely phenomenal tool. It's a wonderful tool. You know, this week, uh, several Canadians, uh, in a Canadian-like way, humorously and gently taught me never to mess with Canadians in a sermon, right? And we had a lot of fun 
with that. On so social media can be a real blessing. Those of you who love cats for some unexplainable reason, you can watch cat videos all day long with through social media, right? Um, we can keep in contact with friends and loved ones and see children grow up who are, who are distant. There's all kinds of great things that happen with social media, but there's also many evil things that happen with social media, and Christians aren't immune from it. With social media, it's much easier to talk about people rather than talking to them, right? With social media, um, it's so easy to gossip, to slander people, to rumor monger. You know, Christianity Today ran a, an article the other day and they said, Christians, gullibility is not a Christian virtue, <laughs> you know? And the number of Christians who will spread rumors and just outlandish conspiracy theories. It's just what is going on. Um, it's so easy to create an echo chamber with social media. So that the only people that you're listening to are people who agree with you and you become more entrenched that what you think and what you believe is absolutely right on level with God's word practically. And most of all, it has an incredible ability to hurt our testimony as Christians who are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Can we remember that? You know, some simple guidelines for social media is that remember that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost, as we are citizens in America. And so our words and the way we conduct ourselves before we worry about representing the kingdom of America, our chief concern is represent the kingdom of God. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Realize, church, that Jesus tells us in Matthew that every idle word we will give an account for on Judgment Day. We represent Him. So let's just, you know, simple guideline. Let's ask ourselves a simple question before we post something, before we comment on something, even before we hit the like button. Because what you like can send a message to somebody who needs Jesus Christ and create an obstacle in their life by what you like. Ask yourself a simple question. Is the fruit of the Spirit visible and evident in this post? Wasn't that cute, the young lady, the young girl up here who could, who could name for us all the fruit of the Spirit? I almost wanted to stop and say, okay, everybody stand. Let's all name the fruits of the Spirit, but I didn't want to embarrass us adults whose brains aren't working like a child's anymore, right? But we know what the fruit of the Spirit is, Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. How would our social media experiences change if we simply ask ourselves the question, what I'm about to like, is there any love there in this post, or joy, or peace? or kindness, or goodness, or gentleness. It would change how we interact with social media. Church, we are to honor and respect and obey our government leaders, even the ones that we may strongly disagree with and dislike. Third imperative, participate in the American society, in the American political process in a Christ-like way. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ, right? That's who we are. We, we are to be engaged with our community and our society. We're to be engaged in the political process. 
I believe. And I look to Paul. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here's a man who's a Jewish, originally a Jew of Pharisee. He's got that rabbi education and status. He's now walking in a society that's very different from what he was raised in. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, you know, to strong people, I try to be strong. To the Jew, I'm a Jew. And to the Gentile, I'm a Gentile. To someone who's more educated, I'm educated. To someone who is more aristocratic, I'm aristocratic. To somebody who's more working class or slave, I'm working class and slave. He concludes it by saying, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And it's so easy for us to look at this and say, well, what this tells me is that Paul had no backbone. Paul wouldn't stand up for what is right. Paul just, you know, was like a chameleon who did whatever he had to do to fit in. The ends justify the means. He's essentially a hypocrite. No, not at all. What Paul is getting at here is something that we as ambassadors of Christ have to remember, that our calling is to enter into this world, to enter into the lives of all kinds of people, people who are maybe very different than us and our upbringing, to befriend them, to listen to them, to understand them, to find common ground with them so that we can build bridges and relationships, and friendships. And at the end of the day, bring them the very best news they could ever receive, the love of God in Jesus Christ. We're called to this, to participate in our society, to participate in our uh, political processes in this way. So if you're Republican, that means you enter into the life of a Democrat. You know, like Dracula, whenever he sees the cross, right? And Democrat, it means befriending Republicans. Um, It means that for some of us, you need to run for office. There's some of you out here who, man, we need a new city council in Palm Bay. The corruption in our city is off the charts ridiculous. I'm going to say that again, in case you didn't get it in internet land. Our city is unbelievably corrupt, and we need completely new leadership. Go go online and Google FDLE's investigative report of what's been going on in our city and read that report and see the extent of the corruption in our city. We need Christians of high character, honoring God, running for office. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Yeah. We need Christians in law enforcement. Some of the Christians I admire the most are Christian police officers and law enforcement officials. They have ministry on the front line like you wouldn't believe. And we need to pack our sheriff's departments and our police departments with Christians who understand they have the honor of being servants of God within our society, protecting what is good and creating an environment in our society that is good and punishing evil. We need more Christians in law enforcement. We need more Christians in government. And by all means, church, we need Christians who will vote. Get involved in the political process. Let your voice and 
be heard, but a voice that is Christ-like be heard. You know, back in 1774, 226 years ago, our country was going through a very heated political uh, time. And there were votes coming up, and John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was a circuit-riding evangelist, and he went around the land, and in his journal one evening, he wrote these words at that time. He said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, first of all, to vote for the person they judged most worthy. Secondly, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And thirdly, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. What godly wisdom, what a godly way to apply this principle that we find in Romans chapter 13 that transformed Christians. We honor and we respect our government leaders. We participate in the process in a way that is pleasing to Christ. One final imperative, and this is, has a little bit more maybe of a negative tone, but it has to be said. If our leaders demand we render to Caesar what is God's, refuse to do so in a firm but gentle manner. Remember the, the principle that Jesus gives that Paul is pulling from in verses 6 and 7. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. What if Caesar asks you to do something that belongs to God? And the answer is no. You're a German family. You're asked by your Jewish neighbors to hide them, to protect them from the authorities. What do you do? You hide them. And then one evening when the SS come by and they ask you probing questions and they put you in an uncomfortable position and they look you in the eye and they say, do you know what has happened to your neighbors? Do you know what your where your neighbors are? Do you have any information for us? What do you do? You deny it. Wait a second. Isn't that breaking the ninth commandment? No. We have to interpret the ninth commandment within the context that it was given and the intent and the purpose behind it. You're not, you're not bearing false witness against your neighbor. You're protecting your neighbor. You're preserving life against injustice and evil, which is rendering to God what belongs to God. Now, our Quaker friends would disagree. They would say, you tell them, yep, they're in my attic upstairs. Darn it, you came by and leave it to God. I don't agree with that. And by the way, I go to scripture. If you're wondering, Jerry, are you telling us it's okay to lie? You gotta understand what a lie is, right? You gotta understand what a lie is. What does the ninth commandment teach us? And if you want a good example of this, you just, again, just go to scriptures. In the Old Testament, we have Rahab. Remember Rahab? story of the Israelites. They come into uh, the promised land. They have the strong city, Jericho, right before them, the strongest city. They send spies in. Spies, they, they do their spy thing, you know, and they find out where the city is weak, but the authorities discover that they have spies in the city. They lock the city down. These men's lives are in danger. They go to the what do you call it? A business, whatever, home of Rahab, who was a harlot, 
and they ask her to hide them, she does so when the officials come and ask, does she know where they are? Has she seen them? She tells them, no, no idea. Haven't been here, right? And so when those Hebrew spies got out, what did it say? Why, you lying harlot, what's wrong with you? No, what did they tell her? Hang a red cord out your window, and when we attack the city, your life is going to be preserved. And Rahab ends up being mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. So we can't approach these types of things with a mechanistic, legalistic type of approach. This is why it's so important that all of this is being bathed in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom and discernment to take the scriptures and apply it to our situations. Now, listen, it's very doubtful that any of us are gonna face these kinds of scenarios, right? Ours are gonna be more nuanced. Across America, even today, governors are restricting and prohibiting corporate worship and gathered worship like we're doing right now. What does it, because of the COVID breakout, pandemic. What do churches do? Obey or disobey? Across America, companies are beginning to require employees to sign ideology documents. As an employee, Christian employee, what do you do when that document it's so clearly unbiblical. Um, across America, I expect us to begin to experience the consequences of the Supreme Court decision that was made this week, where sexual identity is now a protected class under our civil rights laws. And while there seems to be under some protection right now for Christian ministries, don't think that's going to stand. Don't think that's not going to get challenged. And so what does a church do when they're faced with this? My, my pastor friends in Canada are already facing this. And some of them have paid the price for having to stand with Christ. What do we do in all these situations? Well, I would suggest to you that we look no further than scriptures, right? In the Old Testament, we have Daniel and the three Hebrew children they don't give to the emperor what he required. He wanted them to worship their false idols or to stop praying to God. And so they respectfully and gently endured the sword and the weight of the government that came down upon them. Now, in their case, God miraculously delivered them and preserved their lives, didn't he? But Peter and Paul and the apostles... They would not give Caesar the worship that Caesar demanded. They said, no, we cannot give to Caesar what belongs to God. And so they respectfully and gently endured the sword and the weight of the government when it came down upon them. And in their situation, God did not preserve their physical lives. They were beheaded or crucified or torn apart in the Colosseums. Yet... God vindicated them. He gave them justice, and ultimately, he took care of those who persecuted his men and his sons and daughters. All right, a final observation this week as we close out this passage in this time of application of these verses. Our society needs gospel restoration. 
More than anything else, political solutions, everything that is being put on the table, those are nice little band-aids. The solution to what's going on in our society is the gospel of Jesus Christ and gospel restoration. And this comes about through Christians, individual Christians, seeking the good of the society. At times like this, just like what I saw in the, in the 1970s was Christians reacted and they created moral majority and they created all these political movements believing this. It is so easy at times like this for Christians to circle the wagons, you know, and, and kind of put the walls up and protect ourselves and live inside of a bubble. All right, society is going to hell in a handbasket. Let it, we'll take care of our own. You know, this is what the, the Hebrews wanted to do. When they went into exile at the Babylonian Empire, they lived in the city and they created their own little community and their own little walls and their own little safe space and safe harbor and said, we're just going to ride this thing out until God delivers us and we get to go back to the promised land. And God said, no, that is not how you're to live in society. And instead in Jeremiah 21, 29, through the prophet, he tells them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How do we seek the good of our city? Because this is the way forward for us as Christians to live out this command in a respectful way, honoring way, a good way to our government, to our society that may be very different than us. How do we as transformed Christians live in that time? We seek the good of our society. We seek good for our nation and for our government. So how does that happen? The guiding principle of this entire passage, going back to chapter 12, is as Christians, we overcome evil with what? Good. We overcome hatred with the love of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we should want the protections of our Constitution, for example, extended to all the people in our nation. We should be on the front lines demanding that our government ensure justice for all, regardless of your skin color or the size of your wallet. I'm so tired of seeing people who can afford a good lawyer get away with crime. And people who can't get the book thrown at them. This is not right. And as Christians, we should work to see the ideals of our Constitution extended throughout our society to everyone. Now listen, there's a lot of organizations that you could get involved with. A lot of organizations want the same ends, but as Christians, we have to be discerning and careful and only participate in those organizations whose means to these good ends honor Christ. You get what I'm saying here? The ends do not justify the means when you're a Christian. 
When those leaders of Operation Rescue came to my living room that evening in 1993, I grappled with that decision. I, I hated abortion. I had picketed, been arrested back in the 80s. And what they said made a lot of sense to a 20-something-year-old young man. I came close to buying in to what they were doing, and they were grooming me. Of course, if they wanted it burned down, why didn't they do it, right? Of course not. They put some sap up to it. I ultimately prayed through it, and I realized, no, the, the ends do not justify the means in this situation. The means are unscriptural. We have a legal way to fight this battle, fight within the legal means that we have been blessed with as Americans. And praise God, we have those ways. So is this coming from love? Are these means coming from love and out of respect and honor for our leaders, for our constitution? If not, I'm out of there. No. Is, is the way we're going to go about this peaceful, gentle? Is it respectful? Does it honor the leaders that are in charge? If so, as Christians, we should be there up front. Christians, we bring about the welfare of this city. We can impact the good of our city, but it is not going to happen through a political party. The failure of the moral majority has taught that. A political party is not the answer to the problems in our society. You see, we have a sin problem in our society. And no political party is ever going to solve a sin problem. Sin problems require a savior, right? Sin problems in our society require the gospel of Jesus Christ. They require Christians engaging as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in all levels of society, bringing them the good news that we celebrate at this table this morning. You see, every one of us know that we have a sin problem because we've experienced this. We have a sin problem that was only remedied through Jesus Christ. And through us on that wonderful day, coming before our King and bowing our knee before Him and submitting to Him as Lord and Savior. This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, we remember that, yes, we have a sin problem but God provided salvation through Jesus Christ. That when he broke his body on the cross, when he shed his blood upon that tree, we received the salvation that we needed for our sins. And so we rejoice over that this morning. And we also seek to have the Holy Spirit strengthen us and enable us to take this message of restoration and reconciliation with God to our community. This is a sacred meal, which means that it's for those who have had that time where they surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior. If you know in your heart that you're a follower of Christ, you've received him as Lord and Savior, you're invited to take this meal with me this morning. This is a meal for the family of God who follows Christ as Lord and Savior. If you don't know him, I hope that you will see me at the end of the service. I would love to spend time with you. We can go out to lunch. We can go through the book of John together. We can answer your questions. And you can have that opportunity to 
give your life to Christ and receive the gift of salvation. But if you know him this morning, even if you're not a member of our church, but you're in good standing with another church, take this meal with us as our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have children with you this morning uh, and they're not prepared to have it come before our elders and, and been examined, then we ask that you wait and you use this as a teaching moment. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on to say, whoever eats this bread and cup in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself. What does this mean? This means that as we come to this meal, just as you know, good hygiene requires that you wash your hands before you eat your lunch today, we wash our spirits through prayer and we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin that is in our heart that has been unconfessed that we're harboring. And so let's take a few moments, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let me invite you to pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your heart and mind sin that may be in your life that needs to be repented of and confessed this morning. Father, we thank you that you tell us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins. You forgive us of all unrighteousness. You have taken our sin because it is under the blood of Christ and separated them as far as the east is from the west. So we can come to you this morning, pure in heart, with pure hands and pure lips. Thank you for forgiving us for the sins that we know about. Thank you for forgiving us for the sins that we're clueless about. We ask that through your spirit, more and more, you would open our eyes to where we've yet to surrender and we still serve ourselves in flesh. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're not passing out the elements. If you'll reach down under your chair, you will find a packet. Go ahead and get that if you would. And uh, just to give you instructions, and we'll take this together in just a moment, but you simply peel this back, right? And you have a, a layer that has a, a wafer in it. And you have the drink itself. And so let's go ahead and take those out together and we will eat the bread and drink together. Church, this is the body of Christ. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And the scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But thanks be to God who sent Christ to die on the cross and shed his blood for us. Drink in remembrance of him. Every time we take the bread and cup, we show the Lord's death and the wonders and the beauty of the gospel until he comes. May he come quickly, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, 
thank you for the opportunity for us to celebrate your love for us through the participation in this communal meal. We thank you, Lord, that your love for us extends so greatly that you send Christ to die on the cross in our place for our sins. We who deserve to die that death, instead, you send your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us, for giving up the glories of heaven, taking on flesh, living and then dying and rising again so that we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us through this meal? Would you be with us and help us to, to live out the realities of this meal this week, weeks to come, as we engage in a society that needs the good news of Jesus Christ so desperately? Help us to do this in a way that honors you, Jesus, that glorifies your name. May we be salt. May we be in a beautiful aroma to a city where the reek of sin is great. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.